Well, it is good to be back. Thank you for uh, the invitation, despite whatever memories you have of last summer. Um, and, and Craig's absolutely right. Uh, it's uh, uh, sometimes when I'm invited to, to fill in for somebody, uh, I'm given an assignment, a topic or a text or, or a theme fitting in with the series. But uh, Todd was gracious both last summer and and this summer to uh, leave it completely up to me, and uh, that can be dangerous because uh, when you do hit-and-run preaching, um, as I've sometimes called it, uh, you can um, pick some of the hard topics that maybe uh, uh, it's more difficult for the person who speaks week in and week out to deal with. And so thinking along those lines again this morning and having for other responsibilities over the last few months been doing some uh, fresh study on the theme of Christian leadership, I have thought it might be good to tackle a text and a topic that... uh, by nature is awkward for a senior pastor to address. In fact, a title that I've come up with calls this passage the unpopular criteria of Christian leadership. Now, as far as I know, you are in a healthy position. One summer ago, you only had one service. Now you have two. That suggests some growth and uh, momentum that uh, speaks well for more in the future. Uh, While I had only Todd from your staff in class a number of years ago, everyone else that I've met both times uh, from your pastoral staff and other leaders seems uh, to be wonderful, but much like uh, a fire drill to practice what you need to do long before there ever is a fire, and hopefully there never will be one, or worse still, uh, in this part of the world, a tornado drill, hopefully you never actually have to head for that bottommost part of the building. Perhaps when churches are healthy is as good a time as any to take some stock, ask a few questions. What is it that we do look for? What is it that we should be looking for in our leaders? And as we will see, the criteria are really nothing different from what each of us should be striving to be as we grow and as we mature in Christ, because there's nothing in Scripture that suggests large numbers of believers are meant to just remain on the fringe their entire lives. But we all, as opportunities emerge, should be prepared to be mature leaders that somebody else can and should imitate. 
So with that background, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's second letter in the sequence of New Testament letters after the four Gospels and Acts. And uh, I want us to reflect on the entire chapter. So allow me to read. Follow along if you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 until the end. Paul writes, This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of people's hearts. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. (laughs) You've begun to reign and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, (laughs) but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of 
my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline? Or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? If you remember anything about 1 Corinthians, you may remember that this was a very immature church beset with all kinds of problems, many of them surrounding factions, cliques, we might call them today. Back in the first chapter of the letter, Paul explains that he has gotten word from the household of a Christian woman in Corinth that there are quarrels going on. And he explains that one person says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, and another, Cephas, that is Peter, and still another, I follow Christ. Whenever told in so many words what the factionalism was all about, but we can make some educated guesses. Earlier, when Paul was in Antioch, we read the story in Galatians chapter 2, he and Peter butted heads over the nature of the gospel. Did Gentiles coming to faith in Christ have to follow all of the Jewish laws in order to become believers in Jesus? And Paul was passionately convinced that the answer was no, and Peter had previously agreed, but temporarily reneged on that commitment. Maybe some of these theological debates lay in the background of the divisions in Corinth. Acts chapter 18 introduces us to Apollos, a Christian from the Egyptian city of Alexandria who Luke tells us in that chapter was fervent in the exposition of the gospel and successfully refuted those Jewish leaders who rejected Christian teaching. Maybe part of the debate in Corinth had to do with the style of preaching, of worship, of what went on when... Uh, Christians gathered together and how their various house churches in an age in which believers didn't have access to large public buildings went on on Sundays. Maybe some of the debate was more over style than substance. And then it could well be that some of the divisiveness just was what... Uh, Today we might call the practice of uh, Christian groupies. Chapter 3, verse 5 in 1 Corinthians says, uh, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. 
And we know from other scriptures that Peter also had time in Corinth. Maybe some of the division was as simple as, uh, well, I came to faith under Peter. Who led you to the Lord? Well, I was under Apollos. Well, what about you? And somebody else was Paul. Whatever the combination of sources, Paul has to combat it. And he does so very explicitly in the opening four chapters before moving on to some other topics. What he does in chapter four is to help the Corinthians understand how Christian leaders, he and his co-workers and Others who have come to town preaching the gospel should be viewed. I think there are at least four clear criteria in this chapter. The first, spanning verses 1 through 5, is that Christian leaders should be, and we should want Christian leaders who are faithful Stewards, faithful stewards. Paul uses the ordinary term for servant or slave first in the opening verse, but then goes on to speak of those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Older translations often use the word steward which was slightly different from just a run-of-the-mill servant in that it was uh, an individual put over the other servants of a large household or estate, but under the master. Paul recognizes that he has responsibility over the congregations in the house churches in Corinth, But his greater sense of accountability is to God, his true master. And so verse 2 continues, it's required that those who have been given such a trust, those who are stewards, must prove faithful. Faithfulness. Not a popular criterion back then, not a popular criterion today. Reminds us of the C word, commitment. Not success by worldly standards, not glamour, not pizzazz, not glitz, but just week in, week out, month in, month out, year in, year out, faithfully carrying out the call exercising the gifts that each of us has been given. Staying in it for the long haul. We have to keep those opening two verses in mind in order to understand what comes next. Because if we take three or even part of four out of context, it sounds like Paul is a a little dictator answerable to no one, but that's not at all what he's saying. He goes on, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Well, that sounds rather arrogant. 
Indeed, I don't even judge myself. Now it sounds pathological. If we stop there, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. I once saw a sign that said something like, uh, clear conscience is a sign of a faulty memory. What Paul is building up to is what comes next. It is the Lord who judges me. It's not that he has no sense of accountability to those under him. It's not that he doesn't do any self-stock-taking. In fact, all Christians are called to judge in the sense of analyze, critique, evaluate, assess all kinds of things every day in their lives. What Paul's concerned about here comes out as we keep on reading. He's concerned about premature judgment. Judge nothing before the appointed time. And he's concerned about faulty judgment based on misinformation or inadequate information such as imputing motives to people for things we really can't know or know for sure about. It's only at the last day, it's only when Christ returns, when the, the books of our lives are opened, that people will completely and fully accurately understand why you and I did all of the things that we did. Beware of judging prematurely or judging motives that we really can't know. Just be a faithful steward. But faithful to what? That brings us to the second criterion, verses 6 and 7, where Paul alludes somewhat enigmatically to a saying, don't go beyond what is written. He wants the Corinthians to understand the meaning of this saying, which is somewhat Ironic because commentators today aren't sure of the meaning of the saying because we're not sure where it came from. It's not a quote from the Old Testament. It's not some other existing saying that we know because it was preserved in an ancient writing. Maybe it was just a popular spoken proverb that lots of people knew. But what does it mean? Some have suggested that uh, it comes out of the practice of uh, school children learning to write the letters of their alphabet by tracing models of those letters. We still sometimes do that today. And in essence, Paul is saying, uh, follow the principle of don't write outside the lines. Follow the rules. Others have suggested that it, it comes from the business world of writing contracts and trade agreements and, again, basically means uh, 
Do what you've agreed to do. Don't go beyond what's written. But most commentators, uh, it appears, uh, take this to refer to what for Paul would have been uh, authoritative scripture, the uh, Christian Old Testament, and in essence is saying, uh, be scripturally based in everything you do. Don't go beyond what is written. So a faithful steward needs, secondly, to be scripturally based. And that suggests two errors to avoid. One is to draw the boundaries of our faith and our behavior more narrowly than Scripture does. You've met those folks, I'm sure. Hopefully none of you are those folks. Although uh, we know it's not in the Bible, uh, you'd sometimes almost think it were the way uh, somebody contends for we have to have Sunday school at this hour, church at this hour, we have to support this missionary, not this one, we have to teach regularly on my pet doctrine, my theme, even though there are dozens that permeate scriptures. We can draw the boundaries of our faith and practice more narrowly than the Bible does. And the problem with that is that it then creates division, it then creates pride, it then creates cliques. As Paul says, people get puffed up. Well, you're not in my group. We study X more than anybody else does. We do it this way more than anybody else does. But one can also draw the boundaries too widely. Sure, let's just love people. And uh, it doesn't matter what lifestyle they lead. It doesn't matter who's living with who and what sex they are. And we get in trouble just as quickly that way. Faithful stewards, Christian leaders, and others who aspire to Christian maturity need a healthy sense of being accountable to God and simply, excuse me, faithfully serving him, irrespective of individuals' reactions and the ups and downs that come with life and ministry. But they have to do it within the, the parameters of the historic, biblical, Christian faith. Not tightening those boundaries, but not relaxing them either. So those are two, at times, unpopular criteria, certainly not glamorous. The third one gets worse still. Paul, in verses 8 through 13, talks about the suffering that he and his itinerant companions in preaching the gospel experience. Some of it 
just because of the hardship of travel in the ancient world, but a lot of it persecution for their Christian faith. The third and very unpopular criterion for Christian leadership and maturity is uh, to be prepared at times to be unjustly suffering. Unjustly suffering. The Corinthians thought they had it made. Paul is dripping with sarcasm in verse 8. <laughs> Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You've begun, begun to reign. You think you're kings and queens. And lest we think he's speaking literally, he goes on and says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign. A misguided view of Christian maturity is one that focuses only on blessings and happiness and comfort and wisdom. Paul says, no, uh, if you're going to be a faithful steward, scripturally based, you will suffer. And a good chunk of that will not be just. It will be suffering for no other reason than uh, people reject you because they reject your message. And while that looks different back then and today, while it looks different in different parts of the world today, uh, as one commentator put it, we don't have to seek out suffering. If we live long enough, it will come. Many of you know that. Paul here uses the imagery of uh, prisoners of war. Roman soldiers in single file leading the captives linked together at the waist in a procession into the Greek theater or stadium where at best the crowds would jeer and mock them as they were then led off to imprisonment and at worst they would be executed on the spot. <coughs> Excuse me. Given over perhaps even to wild animals. We're like those condemned to die in the arena made a spectacle even to watching angels as well as to the humans in the stadium. And then his sarcasm returns. We are fools for Christ. That's how the Corinthians looked at all of this. And there are Christians today who teach the false and destructive message that God wants Christians always to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I think that was Ben Franklin, but not the Bible. You are so wise in Christ. No, he's not speaking literally, but ironically. And then he goes on to describe the hardship of travel, but also of being rejected simply for bearing the name of Christ. 
climaxing in verse 13 with uh, the very unpopular label, we have become the scum of the earth. Church my wife and I are involved in on Sunday nights in Denver voluntarily took that name 10 years ago, Scum of the Earth Church. People who have never heard of it always react with amazement. We say, well, you know, at least it's a biblical term, not like Holy Trinity or West Bowl. No, no. <laughs> I know, it's just a street, just a street. But in context, Paul is saying if, if you're going to be faithful stewards, scripturally based, <laughs> there are times you're going to feel like scum, like refuse. That's how you'll be treated. This isn't a ticket to respectability in society as it seemed to be for a number of centuries in church history, but if it hasn't lost it altogether, it is quickly reverting back to New Testament times. We have to be prepared for that. You should want leaders who are prepared for that. And if we are active in letting people know who we follow and what we stand for, even with all the tact imaginable, we will experience rejection, hostility, alienation, even if not overt imprisonment or execution. If we were all a little bit more outwardly focused on reaching a dying world, then church would become more of an oasis where we would nurse each other's wounds, comfort one another, and not fight against each other. We need leaders who are faithful stewards, scripturally based, prepared if necessary for suffering even unjustly. We need to be becoming people like that ourselves. But even if we have all three of those elements, there's one more missing that Paul directs our attention to in verses 14 through 21. Here he uses the language of family, of a healthy, godly family. He says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. The word is beloved children. There might be, with a stroke of exaggeration, Paul says, 10,000 traveling Christian leaders that come through Corinth and compete for your attention, but uh, they didn't plant the church in Corinth. You didn't have many fathers. In fact, you had only one. I was your spiritual father through the gospel. So imitate me. Not in a, a factious way as over against the other Christian leaders 
but in all the ways he's just described. I'm going to send you my dearly beloved spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, until I can come. He's my surrogate. There would be another good movie to evaluate. (laughs) Imitate him to the extent that he imitates me, to the extent that I am faithful to Christ Jesus. How can you say that? How can you go on, as Paul does in the closing verses of this chapter, to warn those and rebuke some who have become arrogant, and while making clear he wants to come in love, threatening, if necessary, uh, the rod of discipline. You can do that only when you're specially related. I think that's the fourth criterion, specially related. Specially related in the sense of being like a parent in a godly family. Most of the time characterized by graciousness and love and concern and instruction and guidance with one's children, building up the kind of relationship that earns you the right on those occasions when it's necessary to uh, exercise discipline, to wield the metaphorical rod. Good church leaders, be they pastors, be they elders, be they committee chairs, be they overseers of various ministries, be they Sunday school teachers, missionaries, can go a a long way on the, the first three criteria. But without the care that truly makes it possible for us to call one another spiritual brothers and sisters and children and parents. It won't move to the level that Paul is describing here. Think of your role as simply a chief executive and you will always hold people at a certain arm's length. care about them enough to think of them as family members, and then you uh, can earn the right to speak the harsher word on those hopefully rare occasions when it's necessary. So those are the four points, I think. Not terribly popular, not terribly focused on in leadership manuals. Faithful under shepherds of the chief shepherd. More concerned of how they will have to answer to God than the ups and downs of weekly roast preacher. concerned passionately to be neither more narrow nor more broad than what Scripture itself teaches.
no matter what their pet issues may be. Prepared when God permits it, not seeking after it, but ready, if necessary, to suffer even unjustly. And yet, through it all, maintaining a special relationship with the family of God so that that's not just a metaphor. We truly are family. If you keep those criteria in mind, then uh, you're ready. Even if, God forbid, one of your leaders' lives should suddenly be snuffed out. Or an unexpected turn of events would lead this individual to uh, a job in another city. And the church's reaction at first would be, how could we ever carry on without them? Those things happen in our fragile and transient world. So we're thinking about them when times are reasonably good and not just when uh, a crisis strikes. But it's not just about criteria for leadership. Paul's writing this to all the Corinthians. Apparently there's this collective attitude in the midst of their groupism that says we've arrived. Paul says, no, that very <laughs> attitude shows how far you have to go. So there really isn't anyone who shouldn't take stock based on these criteria. Are you willing to ask the Lord what the next step of discipleship might be for you? And for a subgroup in the church that you're a part of? And if you're not, that may be the next step to become involved in something. Let's pray to him and ask him to disclose those things. Father, you know the uh, lives of each person here. I don't. You know their struggles their joys, their dreams, their frustrations. Even as we're on the verge of summer weeks when a lot of activities take a break and a lot of people travel, would you help us? to be faithful stewards of whatever part of Christian life and ministry and gifting you have given to us. Help us not to go beyond what is written and therefore not to be puffed up as if we've done something that merits your favor rather than recognizing it all of grace. Help us not to be shocked or think that something is wrong or unusual or that, God, you don't love us 
if you call us to suffer. Help us to internalize Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians that your grace is made perfect to weakness, not strength. And help us take whatever next steps in our lives might look like so that more people at West Bowles and other Christians that we know from around the community and around the world would feel more like and in fact be more like family, good, healthy families. Help us this week to see an area where we can take that next step of growth and then give us the strength to do so. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.